Good evening, everyone. We are going to start with an on-time departure over here. So welcome, Temple Emmanuel. And I want to just invite uh, Danielle, if you would mind coming up for a second, because I just want to uh, thank you. I have some things I got to get off my chest. <laughs> Danielle, welcome to Temple Emmanuel. Welcome to Temple Emmanuel. Welcome to Newton. So, um, I'm feeling like a bar mitzvah boy right now. <laughs> you chanted your Haftorah very well. Um, so I wanted to actually thank you for two, two things. Okay? First is a, is a general thank you. Uh, you first came to Temple Emmanuel about 11 years ago. You were a, a scholar in residence. And you were vintage, Danielle. You were so funny. You were so funny. Just your wit and your humor sparkled, and you had so much pathos and so much emotion and so much energy, and mostly you got us. You got us. And you spoke to us, and in your way, that mixture of humor and intensity and urgency, you were kind of inviting us to grow. You kind of taught us one of your favorite words, aspire aspirational. And at the end, everybody was just so wowed. And I remember at the end of your last talk on Sunday, I just got up and said, hey, I am going to study with Danielle in Jerusalem at the Hartman Institute, and would any of you want to come along? And so many people just got up right then and there. And that was about 11 years ago, and what has followed every year, this is our 10th year, every year we send from Temple Emanuel somewhere between 30 to 50 people, 55 some years, to come and learn Torah with you, with your amazing colleagues at Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. And here's the amazing thing. At the end of it, every year, we ask all the participants. There's been more than 200 people who have come from here over the years, uh, many of them multiple times. And every time we ask them at the end, did your week of learning Torah meet expectations or fall below expectations? or exceed expectations, God makes a miracle, and more than 200 Jews say, exceeds expectations. <laughs> and it's not a miracle, it's really what you do. Um, I've said this before, I believe it. I think Hartman is, the Institute, is the best Jewish organization in the world. To me, it's a role model for what Jewish organizations can be and should be. You light the way. So that's, thank you for bringing Torah to us. That's a general thank you. I want to also thank you now specifically for coming tonight on February 24th, and, and here's why. Uh, this is such a fraught time. It's a fraught time in America. So hard to talk about the issues of the day that matter. So hard to talk about the issues of the day that matter in a shul context. Easy to talk about the Red Sox. Easy to talk about Moses and Aaron really hard to talk about the issues of the day. It's fraught in Israel. It's fraught between America and Israel, between North America and Israel. And because of that sensitivity, it's very tempting not to talk about it. And I remember what you said years ago in Jerusalem, that there's a cost. There's a cost to not talking about the important issues. You were talking about Israel, and you said, when you don't talk about Israel, Israel becomes increasingly less relevant to you. If you want to be able to be connected to Israel, you have to learn how to talk about it. 
and you have this patent on talking about the hardest issues, not avoiding them, talking about them, where people disagree, with humility and decency and deep listening. Talk about the hardest stuff at a hard time with humility and decency and deep listening. What you and the Hartman Institute do, you are best in class. You are best in class at role modeling that conversation, and we really need your help now. Danielle, thank you, and welcome to Temple Manual. Good evening, everyone. Is this working? Put that in, in your pocket. And then put that right there. Try that. Could you hear me now? Yes. Hi, good evening, everyone. It's, it's really very special to be here this evening. Um, thank you for that. Um, by far the nicest introduction of the year. <laughs> of last year, too. Um, um, it's very special to be here. Uh, tonight is my father's yard site. And um, there's no shul in the United States which is learning more Torah from the Hartman Institute than this synagogue. And if there's any place that I should speak um, and dedicate a lecture in his honor in North America, it's right here. Um, so I'm really, really pleased to be here. And um, I travel around America and Canada. And everybody's worried about the future of Jewish life. And most of that worry expresses itself in, in kvetching, critiquing those who don't get it, critiquing this or that generation who just somehow aren't as good as we were. But this synagogue, and a few, there's maybe five or ten in America, who are thriving. And who are bearing witness to the fact that our product is outstanding. It just needs a special leader. It needs somebody who could stand up and actually have a plan. Someone who could, who could, before you implement a strategy, strategies are really hard to implement, but the most difficult thing about a strategy is actually to think about it in the first place, to have one. And this synagogue, this shul under you, this synagogue with your lay support and the support that you create, are a witness to the fact that we can, we could succeed that there's good news in Jewish life. We just have to set our aspirations higher and get to work. And so I'm really excited and honored to be here and to talk about a subject that I've, I've been thinking about for many, many years and each year it changes and each year I think about new dimensions to it. And tonight I want to talk about Israel. But in particular, 
I want to talk about what, is, what does it mean to be a Zionist? What does the category mean? What does it mean for us? Initially, when the category began, pre-state, pre-aliyah, it meant supporting the right of the Jewish people to a homeland, ultimately in the land of Israel. It meant advocating for it. It meant fighting for it. It meant laying space and saying, we have a right to what everybody else in the world has a right to. We didn't have to argue that we were a distinct people because the anti-Semites of Europe knew we were a distinct people. That was the easy sell back then. That Jews are a people, of course they're a people. You're them. But we had to argue in some distorted way, not merely that we had a right, because nobody really cared about our right, but that somehow, perversely, it would be good for you if we got out of your face. Zionism spoke to the anti-Semites of Europe and convinced them that we don't belong in Europe. And Zionism meant advocating for that status of the Jewish people. For the status to come home and to build a state where we could be the majority. As the movement became more successful, Zionism did not merely involve advocating for the right of the Jewish people. Zionism meant you were a Zionist if you were committed to moving and to creating that state. To be a Zionist was to believe that the future of Jewish life is dependent on the Jewish people having their own homeland. And that you were willing to stand up and to say, Hineni, I am going to leave. I'm going to do a lech lecha. But what's going to motivate me is not necessarily a divine command. Actually, what's going to motivate me is the antithesis of a divine command. It's a self-motivated command of a people who want to claim their right, their dignity to stand in history and to no longer be the victim. It's a beautiful idea. But only about 200,000 Jews were interested. While 200 or 300,000 Jews were inspired and moved, a million and a million and a half said the solution to the Jewish problem is not going to be found in the Middle East. It's going to be found here in North America. And the vast majority of Jews of North America rejected the Zionist idea. And it could have created a competition. Two core visions about the future of Jewish life in competition with each other as to who had the better answer. But actually, the pathetic success of the Zionist movement at the beginning in the first few decades of the 20th century created a Zionism of tzedakah. 
that in North America you were a Zionist because I was going to support the right of those poor Jews who actually thought that they should move to Israel. So Zionism, even after the Zionist movement begin, becomes a reality, and not just a fantasy of, of Herzl and a few others, to be a Zionist in North America was, we are the successful ones. We're the ones who made it. We're the ones who have power. Let us use our power, our means, to support those Jews who have a noble cause that we're frankly not interested in. But to be a people is sometimes to support what some of your people want. And to be a Zionist meant to support them. And in the 20s and 30s, the supporting of the Yeshuv, supporting of those settlements and those Jews who are moving to Israel, becomes something that's not widespread, but it's, in, it's, 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 an, it's an inherent part of North American Jewish life. You could see the shift taking place, for example, in the reform movement's platform between 1886 and, and, uh, and 1936. By 1930, by 1886, when the reform movement declares we are not a people and we have no aspirations to move back to Israel, by 1936, it already recognizes its, right, its obligation to support those Jews who want to move to Israel. And then comes the Holocaust. Another 300,000 or so Jews moved to Israel post-Holocaust. In 1948, there's what, six, 700,000 Jews in Israel. That's it. That's it. But post-Holocaust, Zionism, outside of Israel, takes on another form. And now it is no longer supporting our poor brothers and sisters who Nebuch made the wrong choice, but we have to somehow support their choices. Now there's a, a gnawing suspicion. Even though I don't want to move, and even though I'm not going to move, I'm really happy that there's an Israel. Because maybe I might have to move. And to be a Zionist is still to support the state of Israel, the right of the Jewish people to a homeland, but it's not the right of the Jewish people who chose to move to Israel to a homeland. Now it's our right as a people to a homeland and hopefully, or not hopefully, hopefully we won't need it, but if we do, we have a safety net in Israel. But there's, there was always a deep ambivalence and a lack of clarity of what it meant to be a Zionist outside of Israel. And Israelis didn't see you. Israelis believed that we have a monopoly on the category. To be a Zionist is simple. To move to Israel. To make 
aliyah, to rise up, and not to live there. Because there, where you're living, there is no future. Now, they were always very ambivalent about you because they didn't respect you, but they needed you. Those of you who studied the I-Engage curriculum and remember the, the Jacob Blaustein Ben-Gurion conversations as evidence to that ambivalence. They really want, they believed that their job was to get you to make Aliyah, but they knew they couldn't say it because if they said it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't support them and they needed your support. But for Israelis, Zionism was to move to Israel, was to be Zion-centric. But for North American Jews, it either meant supporting the right of others to be Zion-centric, or to support a place that I might need one day. But in that position, there's profound ambivalence. Because Israel will only be important if your nightmare comes true. It's, it's, it's the nightmare scenario. Israel's important if everything that you care about and all the decisions that you've made and everything that you built and the lives that you've, that you've nurtured and nourished, if they will come to an end, then thank God I have Israel. And it's because of that, I would argue principally because of that, that Zionism is a very complicated term. And it's becoming increasingly complicated in North American discourse. What does it mean to be a North American Zionist? The bipartisan discourse, the fact that a president of the United States, whom the majority of Jews at best did not vote for, and the majority of whom actually despise, is seen as the most pro-Israel president, embraced by those who are Zion-centric, makes Zionism even harder. Is Zionism a Jewish category, or is it now a partisan political category? Israelis or at least the Israeli government, feels much more comfortable with Christian Zionists than with Jewish Zionists. They're much better partners. So what does this category mean? Tonight, I want to talk about how our conversation about Zionism is undermining even further the viability of the category. I don't want to talk about what Trump's doing. And I don't want to talk about the problems of occupation, and there are problems of occupation. I don't want to talk about peace process or democracy or state and religion. 
all of them are creating serious challenges. And at the end, I might want, I'm going to spend a few minutes on that. But I want to talk about how the majority of Jews, those who are Zionists, are actually making it impossible to use the category. I want to talk about how I believe we are abusing and essentially destroying the category. And for people such as myself, who have a different definition of Zionism, Zionism is not about having a, supporting a country that I might need if my nightmares come true. And Zionism is not necessarily about moving to Israel. But Zionism is about believing that my life as a Jew is intimately connected and enhanced by a relationship with Zion and with Israel. My ability to advocate for that category is not challenged by partisan politics, but is challenged by the way we are talking about Zionism. There are three, I would argue, principal modalities or expressions of Zionist conversation. One is Zionism as utopia. The second is Zionism means to be a loving critic. And the third, I'll call for now, Zionism means to recognize that it's complicated. So we have utopia, loving critic, and the complicated. These are the three principal archetypical groups of Zionist discourse in North America. And I want to argue that none of them could sustain a Zionist conversation. And if there's anything about partisan politics that is destructive, it's that we pick one in which we have to find all of our answers. We don't allow for, for coalitions. But let me, let's talk about each one. The first is Zionism as utopia. This position argues that if you are a lover of Israel, if you care, if you call yourself a Zionist, there's only one thing and one thing only that you need to do. When you talk about Israel, you have to talk about Israel as the only utopia which is actually a reality. Utopia means nowhere in general. But when it comes to Israel, it has landed. If you're a Zionist, you have to tell and share the good news. If you're a lover of Israel, every time you get up, and when you're a rabbi, you have to tell me what's wonderful about Israel. And pick. It could be startup nation. Or it could be startup nation. <laughs> I want a list of all the wonderful things that Israel has done. That's your job. If you love Israel, I want you to talk about everything that it has done to change the world. 
a model of it. You could see in our Prime Minister's speech in 2018. So today I want to ask you, Prime Minister Netanyahu says to APAC, you remember the great Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? Well, I, source two, well, I want to talk about the good, the bad, and the beautiful. There is no ugly. And bad? Don't worry. The good are all the good things that we are doing in Israel that are helping to make the world a better place. The bad? They're all the bad things that malevolent malevolent forces are trying to do to Israel. Israel's not doing bad. Israel's only doing good. And as to the beautiful, well, that's what Israel has yet to do, etc. Now imagine, and when you give this statement, what do you get? Standing ovation. You know those people who talk about their children? (laughs) About the Nobel Prizes they have yet to receive? (laughs) Those are the people who stop being your friends very quickly. They're insufferable. But now that they're insufferable, you really wonder what is their relationship with their children. You hope you know that their children know. So what does it feel like when you talk about me in ways that I know don't express who I am? Over-adoration or adulation is one of the deepest signs of alienation. Talk about me for who I am. I'm a real person. Do you really think that you could sell to intelligent people in our universe that there's the good, the bad, and the beautiful, and we in Israel are the good and the beautiful? Okay, it could be good for a speech for a moment, but do you actually think that you could sustain such a discourse? There is a community who believe that that is exactly the job. If you're a lover of Israel, Precisely in the midst of a world where anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism very often, not always, but are very often enmeshed, your job is to stand up and to share the good news. Rabbi, I want to know, what are you going to speak about from from the pulpit? Give me the good news. But outside of a very small group of people, who are actually capable of enjoying this distortion, in fact, this lie, the vast majority of Jews go to sleep. And if this is what Zionism demands, the vast majority of Jews have no place in a Zionist Zionist discourse. They're outside. I'm going to be in APAC this weekend, and I love APAC. There's 18,000 people at the conference. There aren't many more people, not who can't, who can fit into the conference center, but who want to go. There's six 
million other Jews out there who can't buy this conversation and who look at Israel and yes, Israel's done remarkable things. Israel could be the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I could talk about it, but no. The bad is what they're doing to us, and there is no ugly. Is a dead-end conversation. And then there's the loving critics, who are the opposite of the utopianists. For the loving critics... If you're a lover of Israel, if you are a Zionist, if you care about Israel, your job is to criticize when it is doing something wrong. As we know in our tradition, criticism is an act of love. It's an inherent part, according to Leviticus, of love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you cannot stand idly by when you see them doing something wrong. You have to stand up and say no. And truly, as a parent, you don't worship what your kids do. Your love is to sometimes critique them, to push them, and to point out when they're doing something bad. Now, it's very hard to be a loving critic. And our tradition speaks extensively about how you're supposed to do so. How you're supposed to speak. You're supposed to speak privately. You're supposed to make sure that the people recognize that it's not your desire to be superior, but that you're saying it for them and for their sake. And in our tradition, they recognize that most loving criticism will fail because most of us do not know how not to receive criticism. We don't know how to give criticism. It's an art that requires unbelievable subtlety, requires that you get out of the way, that it's not about you, and it requires that the other one feels that it is motivated by a deep sense of love. But over the last number of years, it's become even harder to be a loving critic. Loving criticism was a very, very central part of my, of my own Zionism. And in many ways, it's the essence of what the Shalom Hartman Institute as an institute is about. Our job is to be loving critics of the state of Israel. Our job is to challenge and to say, what is the Israel that we need and what is it doing wrong? And only if we recognize and talk about what it's doing wrong can we move it in another direction. But over the last number of years, it's become impossible. Not because it's hard to communicate a loving criticism, but because given social media, the pace of discourse and the, the, the pace of criticism is unsustainable. A year and a half ago or so, Israel comes out with a nation-state law. I had three hours to submit my blog. If I wanted my voice to be heard on the nation-state law, I had three hours. If I waited four, there was already too many pieces. I studied the nation-state law for eight months. By the summer, 
I was ready to talk about the nation-state law. Most people who critiqued it within three hours didn't even read it because it wasn't even available. They couldn't know. Some did. After eight months, I was ready, and I was ready to write my piece. And the person says, what do you do? Who cares about the nation-state law? The next day, we didn't care about the nation-state law because the next day, we had to write another piece about a different burp that Prime Minister Netanyahu gave. And we had to comment on somebody's comment. Just like over-idolization of your children is not sustainable, Imagine if all you do every day is criticize your children. Today, we used to be four times a year I was a loving critic. Before Rosh Hashanah, that was the time for state and religion. You know, Hanukkah may be democracy. Pesach, the relationship of Israel to world Jewry. Summertime, let's talk about the Palestinians because there's always a war in June. So those are my, from every three, four months. But what happens if you have to do it every day? To be a loving critic which demands of you to respond every single day, it's unsustainable. It, and after a while, you, 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 not only could you not sustain it, but it changes the way you feel. And it changes when people hear it. It doesn't sound like loving criticism, even though that's its intent, because the pure volume defines the whole context, and someone's going to get up and say, then what do I even need to have a relationship at all? So most loving critics, do you know what they do? They just become silent. I became silent. I only wrote two pieces in the last year. I just couldn't write anymore. I just didn't want... I, 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 I don't, I, my love for Israel didn't allow for me to vocalize over and again. Okay, what did he do today? I can't believe that that minister did that and this one did that every single day. One of the best... The best Zionist of North America, Rick Jacobs, good friend of mine, wanted to serve as a model of what it means to be a loving critic of Israel. And to show that I could be a Zionist in America precisely by demanding. Have you noticed how silent Rick has been about Israel? After the Kotel? Maybe. It was the Kotel, then there was Jerusalem, and that's it. Time to time. You can't. The loving critic has become just as dominant as the utopian. And you yourself who are engaged in it become distanced. And the person who hears it, for whom it's not certain that they need a relationship with Israel, after a while says, well, this is a pretty crappy place. What do I even want to have a relationship with it for? But there is a third model, which in the past 
used to be the salvation. The third model says, I'm going to do one and two. Or you can't really do one and two because one demands exclusivity, but I'm going to do a moderated two. I'm going to look for balance. I'm going to be a critic of Israel, but I'm also I'm going to recognize when Israel does something good. And I'm also going to critique it for its failures. I'm going to try to find some balance in the conversation. I want to show that it is complicated. That Zionism is the good, the bad, and the ugly, or maybe the good and the bad. There's good, and then there's bad. Now, that's imminently reasonable. That would be, that's what, it's perfect. And a rabbi who wants to talk about Israel is very simple. Sometimes give the speech about the good, and sometimes give a speech about the bad. Life's simple. But it's not. Because in this environment, each partisan ideology or each particular perspective, they don't want you to be balanced. They don't want you to have a complicated story. They want to police what constitutes complicated. They want to police what constitutes balanced. And so you want to give a speech on the good? If I'm a utopian, I'm happy. The minute you give a speech about the bad, and every rabbi in North America could attest to this, every educator in North America could attest to this, someone's going to get up and say, I appreciate that there's something bad. But when's the last time you said something good about Israel? Last week. No, when's the last time? Oh, I know it was last week. And when was it beforehand? For every bad, I want six goods. You want to critique occupation? I want a critique of Hamas. I want you to get up here and to declare your alienation and rejection of Iran. Very profound. Very important. I want you to critique Hezbollah. How many times have you critiqued Hezbollah that you dare to critique the occupation? And the same thing in the reverse. You're saying something positive? That's whitewashing. You just whitewashed the occupation. No, I didn't. Last week I spoke about... No, no, you just whitewashed it. In reality, three was supposed to create nuance. But it's never associated with two. It becomes the position... It very often, for those on the right, it becomes associated with the first. I want you either to exclusively declare Israel as utopia or I want you to exclusively critique it. And instead of creating balance, it's created a 
a group of people who believe that it's their job to police that balance. And when they don't hear it the way they want, you are an anti-Zionist. And so number three, instead of allowing some oxygen in the room, instead of allowing us to find a way to speak about the good and the bad, to allow us to have a complicated relationship, it's used as a power play. And it silences the conversation. The first is a conversation that most people recognize as a lie and they can't be a part of. The second is a conversation that has become self-defeating. And the third is a conversation stopper. This is not the consequence of Israel's policies. And this is not the consequence of partisanship or this or that president. This, my friends, is what we, the Jewish community, have done in the last 10 years with Zionist conversation. We, with our own hands, have made it impossible for somebody to have a normal conversation about Israel. And in that environment, as you said, it's just better not to talk about it at all. And here, it's not our leaders. It's every single one in this room. We, in every single surrounding that we're in, we then develop friendships where we're going to get together. I want the ones. No, I'm going to be the twos. No, I'm going to sit in the other one and be its critic and shut it down. And then we wonder, oh, what's wrong with the millennials? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing wrong with the millennials. They're not diseased Jews. They're not the Jews who somehow don't get it. Do you know what the big problem with millennials are? They're inheriting the Judaism that we're bequeathing to them. Let's think about that. And if you want to be a loving critic, it's time to be a loving critic of ourselves. And if we talk in a different manner, then maybe it's possible that somebody might say, yes, I could be in this conversation. I could be here. There needs to be a fourth conversation about Zionism. First, that conversation has to get rid of anybody who wants to be the police. Every single one of you is a Jew and has a part of Judaism because you have picked and chosen the synagogue, the rabbi, the denomination, the approach that enables you to have a Judaism within which you could breathe. Autonomy is the necessary oxygen for Jewish life, and every one of you is a testament to that. 
Anytime somebody tries to control the entry point, most Jews are going to stay outside. You know it, you live by it, but why is it that when it comes to Zionism, you somehow have forgotten? And obviously, I'm not speaking to any of you. You're perfect. <laughs> Especially those of you who've come to the Institute. All 200 of you. I'm speaking not to you. Maybe. I don't know you well enough. I'm speaking to you as the American Jewish community. If Zionism has a chance, we have to get rid of the police. And in an era where a conversation is getting lost, don't worry about boundaries. Boundaries is what you begin to erect when people are inside. When people don't even know where there's a there there, you're just going to erect walls and not boundaries, which are going to keep them outside. But more significantly, we need a different conversation about Zionism. This, by the way, is also is the curriculum of Zionism of, of I Engage 6, which I and my research team have just started to work on, and we're going to be working on it for the next two years. Is there another way to talk about Israel which doesn't involve, obviously, idolization, but also doesn't begin with what Israel's doing wrong? We have to reconstitute a conversation about Zionism which could make it coherent for me as a North American Jew to say, yes, this is an essential part of what it means for me to be a Jew here in Newton. It's a Zionism that cannot be controlled by Israelis. Israel could control whatever it wants. And Israel does have a right to determine its own policies as a functioning democracy. But Israel does not either have a right or a capacity to define itself as important to you. Israel cannot declare itself as important. It has to earn it. And the only one who gets the chance to vote I know you're going to vote in what is it that everybody's voting in now, whatever, I'll leave that alone for now. Whatever it is, knock yourselves out. But I, you don't have a road, you're not voting in the, in the Israeli election, but where you do vote, your most important vote is not for some pseudo-political organization. Your most significant vote is whether Israel's important to you. And that's a vote that will only be possible if there's a conversation about what Israel ought to be. What is the Israel that you imagine? It's a Zionism which starts with a conversation. Imagine if. It's a Zionism which starts with a conversation. I have a dream of an Israel which is. Now in some cases that might be Israel might approximate it and sometimes it might not. That's a secondary conversation. But is it worth it? We as Jews are now analyzing to death the relationship, but it's like a couple in marriage therapy who aren't committed to the marriage. Not even committed to the marriage, not even committed to the institution of marriage. What would marriage therapy look like if you have a couple that are, I don't believe in the institution? Is Israel worth it? What does a Jewish foreign policy look like?
What should a Jewish foreign policy look like? What should Israel's relationship be with the world? What is the place of morality and policy in today's world? What do we want? Not talking about where Israel gets it wrong. Truly, what does a Jewish democracy, what should it look like? What is the ideal expression of state and religion in the state of Israel? Not why isn't Israel more like us or not. Not from a critique, but sitting down and saying, yes, not Israel is not a laboratory. Israel is a space which can create something that I would be honored to have a relationship with. Which one of us has a theory about that? Now, it's very hard to do today. Because the job of imagining, if you want, what a liberal Zionism would look like, is going to lead afterwards to reflections about what are the gaps between the Israel you imagine and the Israel which you have. But we're spending too much time talking about the gaps and not talking about the Israel that we want. A year or so ago, a student of mine, oh, somebody who came to study at the Hartman Institute, and my job that time was to talk about what the Hartman Institute is, and I spoke about the fact how the Hartman Institute is a Zionist institution. And one of the students raised her hand and she said, Danielle, could you not use that term? I feel you're justifying the occupation. I said, why do you feel that way? She said, I feel that way. And I want to recommend a different term. Because the minute you say that, you lose me. Could you not speak about Zionism? Change the word. We need a new word. So I said, what do you suggest? And she said, how about a movement that recognizes the right of the Jewish people to sovereignty in their homeland? <laughs> so I said, that's catchy. <laughs> I could see a slogan. I am. <laughs> it sounds like a, a program which I name. I come up with, uh, you know, I started this program for Jewish education in secular schools. So that's what I called it. <laughs> the program for Jewish education in secular high school, in secular public high schools in the state of Israel. And when I wanted to get really clever, I took the first word, the first letter of each one, and that was my definition. And Amy's laughing because she knows it's exactly true. The job of thoughtful people today, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in North America, in which are not merely our institutions, but our values are being attacked. And certain key values are being undermined and thrown aside, is not to allow anybody to own our categories. Not to allow anybody to define for you a category, but to get up and to say, no, I'm going to keep my category and I'm going to define it. But to do so, we have to be capable. 
To do so, we have to have a Torah which enables us to put Zionism back on the conversation. In different ways, the Jewish people have been Zion-centric since Genesis 12, when God tells Abraham, go forth to the land that I will show you. We became even more Zion-centric on the rivers of Babylon when we were outside. And when we said, how could I sing a song on foreign land? We've learned to build a Judaism that's multifaceted. We've learned to build a Judaism that doesn't have any single soul-defining characteristic because any single soul-defining characteristic is never going to be strong enough to serve as a source for identity and inspiration for the Jewish people. And so for 2,000, 2,500 years, we developed Torah, we developed more and more ideas. We developed truly a complex religious life with multiple legs. But Zion was always a part of it. The future of Jewish peoplehood, and I would argue even the future of Zionism, is whether North American Jews could begin a different discourse, recognizing fully that you have no aspiration to move to Israel. You love it here and you're at home. You don't have an aspiration and you don't have a need. But that doesn't mean that Israel has to be relegated to the life or to the days of your nightmare. How do you reclaim a place for Israel in your souls? A place in which you feel that it's important and vital. That it inspires you. That it does something for you. Can we develop such a narrative? Can we overcome not just the utopianists, not just the loving critics, can we overcome the thought police, the, 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 the police of the balance, and with courage and vitality and freedom, each one of us find a place for Israel in our souls. That is a mountain that we have to climb. That's a conversation that we haven't had in close to 80, 90 years. That's what Zionism was about initially. It was the most utopian. It was a movement of imagine. Can we not build an old new land, but can we have an old new conversation? future of your relationship with Israel, but even more importantly, the depth and vitality and scope of your Judaism is going to be dependent on whether we can develop that type of Torah, whether you could develop that type of Torah, which could inspire you. My bracha to you and to all of us, I don't know if we're going to achieve it, but as we say in our tradition, let's begin. Thank you.
Danielle, thank you, and I really believe that your beloved departed father and teacher, Rabbi David Hartman, is shining down in heaven on, um, on the Torah that you taught in his name. Thank you so much. Thank you. So what I want to do is uh, take, let's say, three questions at a time. Uh, it's a kind of a Hartman uh, move. Uh, they always take like three questions, a bouquet of questions, and then Daniel will, will fill them in any order that uh, his, his spirit sees fit. So any, any questions, uh, thoughts, comments? Yes. Oh, by the way, short questions. Well, I have a short question. I did live in Israel for 13 years between 1970 and 83, and I, it's in my soul. It's deep. My only question, I didn't understand number three. Why, did, why, what's the problem with number three that you mentioned that it's complicated? Got it. Thank you. Okay. Hi. Um, I rarely find myself in situations where I'm like this, would probably be speaking or preaching to the choir, so to say. Um, I'm mostly in school and in arguments about Israel, rather. Um, so I was wondering, I find myself to be of the utopian narrative more, and um, so to me it's like, why bother criticizing Israel when there's so many other people who will willingly criticize it? And I feel like it's my duty to stand up for it instead of adding to the negative. So I'm wondering what you have to say on that. And um, Marty, third question, and then Daniel will take him. I'll make this shorter. Do Israelis care? what we in North America think of them. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start with the first, and I'll go second and third. I'm being creative today. <laughs> um, the problem is people. We're the problem. Three should be fine. There's no problem. Each one of us has to find, just like with our children, just like in any relationship, between the good and the bad and the balance and how you relate and if hopefully there'll be more good and sometimes there's years of more bad and sometimes there's great, you might have a little distance, sometimes you talk a little more, sometimes you have a little alienation. That would have been fine. The problem is that three has been hijacked by a policing force. Very often, none of you, every single rabbi in North America has been accosted by that police force. Every single Jewish institution in North America, whoever says anything by, about Israel, has been accosted and attacked and boycotted by that police force. Who get up and say, when is the last time? And even when you answer, they say, well, then I want more. Two, three, four. I will you, want to really you want to critique Israel? Well, you haven't earned the right to do so. Because you haven't said enough positive, and you haven't critiqued the other side. We're the problem. The notion of balance 
is a phenomenal category because there's no such thing. What's balance? You're supposed to leave it up to you. Zionist discourse is being silenced all across North America by this police force. And when you don't do it right, somebody pulls their finances. When you don't do it right, they walk out of your shul and cancel the membership. When you don't do it right, they, they take out ads in the newspaper and declare you an enemy and an anti-Zionist. This is happening all the time. All the time. That's the problem with number three. We're the problem. I appreciate very much that in the midst of a very strong and anti-Israel narrative, you want to create a balance. But what about you? What's the balance in your soul? It's one thing if you recognize, listen, when you think that you're on a stage, and it's true, when you're on a stage, if anti-Semites are criticizing Israel, what do I have to, or anti-Zionists, what do I have to be the one who also critiques Israel? But the discourse about Zionism is not a discourse on a stage. It's a discourse which has to shape your identity, not the identity of others only. And so I appreciate and applaud very much. It's true, there are times that you're going to be on a stage and I support 100% and agree with the choices you're making. But don't confuse life on a stage with life. In addition to that, I have found I'm on a stage a lot. And I have found that very often, when you're on a stage, there are moments when your job is just to say whatever it is that you want to say. But if you actually want people to hear, you will have almost no credibility if you, if you stay in category one. Now, how to do it, how to do it with balance is very, very tough, especially in this environment. But if you're the number one, you will only be preaching exclusively to acquire. And if your job is actually to try to create more friends for Israel, number one, just doesn't work. It's very painful to say it, it just doesn't, no one buys it. I've started, I've, I, I discovered this many years ago, and I and my colleagues, we use a very different method. Imagine, I remember there was a group of people. There's, there's this phenomenal Jew in Chicago whose name is Yechiel Popko, who single-handedly is trying to make sure that different mainline Christians have a more balanced discourse around Israel. And all of them go on, many of them go on trips to Israel. And um, in these trips, they obviously have a balanced time because they spend half their time in Palestine and half their time in Israel, so everything seems fine. The only problem is that 98% of the half of the time that they're spending in Israel is traveling in the footsteps of Jesus. So they are connecting to Israel of 2,000 years ago and to Palestine of 2020, 
which creates a challenge. And then from time to time, Yechiel comes and says, Daniel, there's a really important group. Could you just go speak? So like we, it, and he's, he's one of the few people, like, I'll go where he sends me, because it's all, he's trying to, we're all trying to help the Jewish people here, just like you are. And I remember there was this group who had spent, they had, they had really connected to Jesus as a Jew, and then, and then after that, they moved on to Palestine, and they had just come from Beit Lechem. And she said to me, so I said, okay, you know, let's take, I, instead of giving a lecture, I said, let's just start with questions. Someone raised their hand and says, why don't Palestinians have a right to soccer fields, just like Jews do? So she was expecting me to come and say, well, we have built over the last number of years 47 soccer fields throughout Judea and Samaria. And not only that, most of the soccer fields which we built have been closed down by the Palestinians. They don't want the soccer fields, so it's not our fault. I would have lost her. What I said to her is, you're absolutely right. Palestinians have absolutely the same right to soccer fields as we do and that Palestinian children should have the same rights that Jewish children. Rights that all human beings have a right to dignity and freedom and safety and leisure. And I'm deeply pained by the fact that Palestinians don't have, as me don't have enough soccer fields. I spent about five minutes doing that, and then she was ready to walk with me as I talked to her about something else. So you might just want to think about your approach because I don't know you and don't take this wrong, but I love you. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm getting into trouble. <laughs> because I love what you, you're just, you know, you're fantastic. You're like, you're there and you're saying, I'm going to, I'm, I'm there. I'm there. I want to help. But sometimes how you help needs some more nuance. And so use your spirit, add to it nuance, and you'll be even a better bracha for the Jewish people. Um, as to whether Israelis care, my whole conversation tonight is I don't give a damn. <laughs> my whole conversation tonight is not about whether Israelis are going to accept you as Zionists. My discourse tonight is about how you in North America have a conversation about Zionism that you care about. What do Israelis care? That's going to be their problem. And you want to know something? It's not that important. My father has one of the, had one of the all-time great lines, and tonight's a great night to quote it again. My father said in the 70s, Israel's too important to leave to the Israelis. Zionism, and remember what I said. I said, Israel wants to be or declare that it is the homeland of the Jewish people unilaterally. It wants to declare its significance to you unilaterally. In 2020, we know the absolute failure of that attempt. You cannot declare unilaterally your importance. You have to build a discourse around Zionism that you care about. And when you care about, you're going to fight for it, not by going, you're then going to force us and say, yes, this is my Zionism, now let's talk. Whether they'll come on board or not, that'll be up to them. That'll make it more difficult if they fight you. But not only, here, this is, 
Israelis don't own what is authentic Judaism, and they also do not own what is authentic Zionism. You understood that when it comes to Judaism. You don't ask Israelis to authenticate or validate your Judaism. I'm asking you not to ask them to authenticate or validate your Zionism, but that requires of you to develop a different Torah of Zionism that will work for you here. Bob Khan, uh, I'm gonna give Bob the last question and then we'll end after his question. Thanks, uh, does your model apply to Israelis? And if so, how does it apply to Israelis? Does my apostle, now that's another lecture, um, but, uh, <laughs> but it actually, and I really appreciate it very much because it does. And I think one of the big problems in, of, of, of Zionism in Israel today is that what happens when you fulfill your ideology, when you fulfill your dream and you're in need of a new dream? The core dream of creating a successful country where Jews could be free has been fulfilled. Zionism is one of the most successful ideologies in the 20th century. It's remarkable. It's remarkable what we've achieved. Prime Minister Netanyahu has done a remarkable job over the last 10 years. Remarkable. Navigating the safety, security, and prosperity of the State of Israel in some of the most difficult times with some of the most difficult and dangerous enemies. Remarkable job. One for which all Israelis are or should be in his debt. And most Israelis recognize that. But Prime Minister Netanyahu has a vision of Zionism, or rather a vision of Israel, which he explicitly states and says, support for Israel is no longer dependent on our values. Support for Israel is now dependent on our power. People want to have relationships with strong people. A strong Israel will be a loved Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu, you're not listening tonight, but through you, you are wrong. You're wrong, maybe not empirically. Maybe in this world, there are different um, administrations and countries for whom morality is not an integral part of their identity. And maybe there are certain countries which will support us or vote for us for this or that legislation. And maybe it's even politically necessary, and I'm not critiquing, and it's important, I'm not critiquing Israel's desire, I actually appreciate Israel's desire to build alliances with people, and in the world of realpolitik, we have to build alliances with people that we don't like. What worries me is when you develop an ideology in which you don't even know anymore that you don't like them. What bothers me is that you don't even think there's something wrong. It's one thing that you recognize you have to compromise. It's another thing when you've changed your system and you say it's not even a compromise anymore, anymore and now Zion is not, an, is not an imagine. You don't have any imagine. You don't need one. You just need another exit. You need another product that India is going to build and you fulfill the Zionist dream. And I'm sorry, Prime Minister Netanyahu, you are wrong. 
Zionism is bigger than that. Israel is bigger than that. I accept. Not only do I accept, I celebrate. Not only do I celebrate, I am awed and inspired by the physical success of Israel. I love a successful country. But that's not Zionism. Every single Jew who recognizes that Shabbat is an integral part of what it means to be a Jew knows what Abraham Joshua Heschel taught all of us. And that is, to have more doesn't mean to be more. Zionism is not a movement of having, it's a movement of being. Because that's the only way it could be a Jewish movement. Israelis are in need of that. Unfortunately, in the political discourse and in the political map of Israel, nobody's talking about a Zionism of imagination. No one's even talking about imagination when it comes to the Trump peace plan. Or, I don't, you can't really call it a plan. The Trump burp. <laughs> peace burp. No, that's what it was. It was a, it was a burp. It wasn't, it's not a plan, because a plan you actually have to talk to somebody. Now, I might like, no, no, I might like even many parts about it, but it's just, it's, you can't call it a peace plan. That would, you, you know, because you, you're actually talking about a relationship. You, you'd have to actually have to talk to somebody. It was my, it was my peace burp. There, no one's, no one's even talking about what it should be, what it can be. It's just, there's no imagination. We have self-fulfilling policies which reach the lowest common denominator on a regular basis. And blue and white, in order to compete with the Likud, has not articulated in any significant manner what its vision is. So it speaks about institutions. But what, is your, what, what do you believe are the great moral failings or challenges? Where do you want us to... You can't talk about it because you get elected by lowering the standard. And so, yes, I do believe that our Israelis are in a profound need of that. And that in general, Zionism, which was one of the most utopian movements, met reality and said, dreams we're going to leave for tomorrow. Now we have to build a country. Well, here's the good news, ladies and gentlemen. We succeeded. We have a phenomenal country. We have an unbelievable country. It's remarkable. Now it's time for us not to merely have dividends of the fact that we found gas, but to take the dividends of our success and to go back to dreaming and to remembering that for Zionism to be a Jewish movement, to have more doesn't need, mean to be more. Thank you all very, very much. Thank before you go, I just before you go, I wanted to just, uh, in 30 seconds, give a response to Danielle and then a request to all of you. Okay? First of all, Danielle, let me tell you why I just loved what you did. And it was so vintage, you and Heart Minister. Number one, super thoughtful. Super thoughtful. And, and it transcends any kind of partisan divides. Number two, ultimately invite us to critique ourselves, which is always a good place to start. And number three, you invite us to aspire to be more, to be more, and to dream higher. And that is like, where else do you get that? Where else do you get aspirational in this world? So here's what I want to say. 
um, for thoughtful and for aspirational, the best place in the world is the Hartman Institute. So what I want to, no, 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 no joke. I want to just say, especially for those of you who are members of Temple Manual, and to the extent that I have any credibility with you at all, <laughs> if I have one ask of you for this year, it is go to Israel and go to Hartman. That's my ask. If I have one ask of you this year, I mean, I love Minyan. I love Shabbos. I love Tikkun Olam. I love helping the refugees. But if, if, I, if you said to me, you get one ask, one ask, that's all you get. And I'm not going to come to another Tamil class. I'm not going to come to another service. I get one ask. My one ask is that. My one ask is that. One week in Hartman will change your life, and one week at Hartman will change our life. And by our, I mean a big hour, here and there. Go to Israel, go to Hartman, drive home safely. Thank you. <laughs>